Welcome to the Money Answer Show with host Jordan Goodman. Whether you are starting out, deep into your retirement, or somewhere in between, the Money Answer Show has the know-how to help you. Now here's your host, Jordan Goodman. Welcome to the Money Answer Show. This is Jordan Goodman, your host. My guest this week is Randy Kurtz. He is the Chief Investment Officer at Betavisor LLC, which is a, a company, an investment company based in Chicago. Welcome to the show, Randy. Thanks so much, Jordan. Uh, thanks for having me on. So you've had a very interesting uh, career to get to where you are now. So why don't you just kind of give us a brief introduction to uh, your your path, I guess you might say, to where you are now. <laughs> Perfect. Uh, well, I started off my uh, career wanting to be a stock picker. Uh, so I went to get an MBA at Columbia Business School. And uh, something really interesting happened there. Warren Buffett came to give a speech, as he does every two years. Uh, and in front of a packed auditorium, he's answering questions. But what really resonated with me is that Warren Buffett said to this group of people, uh, as he looks back over the course of his investing career, he realizes that he only gets about one good idea a year. Now, I was floored. I was like, wait a second. This is one of the best investors of all time, and he only gets one good idea a year. This is pretty crazy. Uh, so that stuck with me for a while, and I'll tell you how that came around to roost later. Okay. Uh, the second main meaningful thing at Columbia that happened is I took a class by a guy uh, from a guy by the name Michael Mobison, uh, and he was talking about uh, market efficiency and what he calls dumb agents. So get this. Uh, he's at the airport one day, and he's waiting at, at his gate with about 100 other passengers. And over the loudspeaker, the uh, person there says, I'm sorry, passengers, uh, our flight is indefinitely delayed. Now you can hear the collective groan from everybody. Michael says, yes, this is fantastic. Because what he does is he goes around to everybody at that gate and he says, I'll pay you $100 if you can guess closest to when our plane takes off. And he had everyone at the gate write their name and their guess of when it takes off. Now, it's okay. interesting. Nobody has any information, and people are making random guesses. But what happened is he took the average of all those dumb guesses, and the average outperformed every single person. So there's a, really a, a, a wisdom of crowds is what you might say, right? It's absolutely a proof of the wisdom of crowds. It's so hard to beat the stock market, a crowd, anything. So when people say, well, I bought some shares of Apple because I think they'll do well. Well, I would argue that's probably not a very good bet because there are thousands of people trying to figure out what their sales are going to be, what's implied by the stock price today. It's so hard to beat the market. So when you take what Michael Mobison said about the wisdom of crowds and when you take what Warren Buffett said about he only gets about one good idea a year, I then graduate and I find myself working on a $7 billion fund at Bear Stearns. It's a mutual fund? Is that it was right? a mutual fund. That's correct. Uh -huh. Mostly what, institutional. What, what kind of a fund was it? Stock fund, bond fund? What kind of fund was it? It was a stock fund. We had about 50 stocks at any one time. Okay. Now, what was interesting is you sit around this group of professionals. Uh, we had 50 names in the portfolio. So if you wanted to put some money in today, they would have said, here's our best 50 names. And what's weird to me is, well, Warren Buffett says he only gets one good idea a year. Yet we were saying, whenever you're ready, we have 50 good names on call. Okay. Right? That's a contradiction. Uh, the other thing that happened to me is I realized that most of the time when I did research on a company, my conclusion would be, 
that the company is pretty fairly priced. So the market is efficient is what you're saying. In my opinion, it was very efficient, very hard to find something that was wildly or obviously out of whack. And I found that I was only coming up with one or two good names a year. Okay. So Did this, I, make, this didn't make you very popular at Bear Stearns because your job was to pick more than <laughs> one stock a year, probably. Right. I was certainly uh, an outlier. Uh, everybody, everybody was uh, making calls every single week. I want to buy this. I want to sell that. Uh, I only spoke a couple times a year. Uh, now, it didn't make me unpopular because uh, as good fortune was have it, uh, those picks did pretty well. But I was certainly an outlier in terms of how I approached the business. Now, uh, I did that for about three years and realized that uh, I can't manage a fund like this. I can't go on this career trajectory and someday be managing a 50-name portfolio because I just don't come up with a good, good enough names. I can't come you, up with that many names. You didn't believe in what they were doing, basically. I didn't. Right. right. But we actually didn't believe it if you were to ask us. Uh, okay. And it's not that we were lying. But what we did is every week on Friday, we got together and we had our list of 50 or so stocks. Next to them would be the current stock price, and next to that would be our uh, assumed stock price, what we thought it was worth. The target price. The target price, price. exactly. Right. Okay. Now, if you looked at this list, uh, consistently on the top of that list, the top one, two, or three names, we always thought had high upside, 20, 30, 40%. But all of the rest of the stocks would be single-digit upside. If a stock was priced at $20, we might think it's worth $20.50. Right? Okay. It was weird. So most of our ideas we actually thought were market perform. As a group, we actually knew that we could only come up with one or two good ideas at a time. Yet you were being paid to beat the market, right? That's absolutely correct. So you have to rely on those few stocks that you really believe in to really provide a lot of benefit because you know you're taking a lot of coin tosses. Mm -hmm. uh, so I wanted to start my own firm. And I started my own firm under the premise of, I'm going to buy individual stocks for you. But I only want to charge you if I actually provide value, if I outperform the S&P 500. During each calendar year, you see During what your performance was year. and what the yeah. S&P 500 was, right? Absolutely correctly. Because if you can go buy an S&P 500 ETF and that does better than I'm doing, why should you be paying me? You don't know that in advance each year, but you hope. You don't for the know best. that in advance, right? You hope for an invest uh, for the best. So my proposition was: if I'm providing value, you should pay for me, and if I don't provide value, then you don't. What it also let me do was put your money directly into the S and P 500. Now it's interesting. If I do that, you'll owe me exactly zero dollars at the end of the year, right? I so will match the some of the money that you were getting to invest was in the S&P 500 ETF, and then you'd have a few extra stocks that you thought would beat the S&P, is what you're saying. Absolutely, because if I could only find one or two good ideas a year, I didn't want that one idea to be 100% of your money. I didn't want those two ideas to be worth each 50% of your money. That would be too big. So if I'm putting 5 6 7% in an idea, and I only have two ideas, that means about 90% of your money I don't have ideas for. But I don't want to sit there in cash. I want to put it in the S&P 500. So essentially, that 90% or whatever that I'm putting in the S&P 500, you're not paying for. And you're just paying on my few names that I'm trying to outperform or provide value with. Does that make sense? 
And what kind of returns did you, in fact, beat the S&P 500 over what period of time? Or how many years did you win and how many years did you not beat the S&P 500? So I did this for eight calendar years. I outperformed the S&P in six out of eight of those. I outperformed 90% of my competitors. Uh, and at one point, Barron's even ranked me the number one performing manager in the country. So as a stock picker, whether it's luck or skill, it's hard to say, but I actually did well over that time period. Uh, but I had a, uh, a moment where I had to look myself in the mirror. Uh, and I said, the thing that I'm not accounting for is that some of my investors pay taxes. It's not all in IRAs. Some of it's in after-tax money. So what but I you wouldn't necessarily to... sell. You would, you would hold on to a stock until you thought it became overvalued, right? So you wouldn't necessarily sell your winners. Absolutely. Me. But over time, as I'm selling, uh, you are incurring taxes. Yes. So what I did is I did a study back from the beginning with the first account I ever opened and assumed the highest marginal tax rate possible. And I said, what are their returns with me when I now include this additional cost that they're bearing, the taxes? Mm -hmm. And what I realized, it was pretty humbling that over those eight years, yes, I did still outperform the S&P 500, but it was by the slimmest of margins. So that's okay, interesting. So counting taxes. Okay. Uh, and then there was the management fee as well in the years in which you beat it. So right. That's that's in, right. Included in that. Yes. So okay. what my conclusion was, well, I was a top 10% manager for eight years. Uh, but after taxes, I hardly provided any value. So now how can I sell this to somebody? What am I going to say? Hey, Jordan, uh, I'll try to be a top 10% performer going forward. And you'll probably be left with very little excess performance. That's quite a sales pitch. That's <laughs> a pretty bitter pill to swallow when you've devoted your life to picking stocks. Okay. Uh, so I started to look at uh, diversification. And what does diversification mean? Why is it when you gather 500 stocks, such as the S&P 500, why is it so hard to beat that? And what I ended up doing is making a transition from being what I used to be, which was an alpha manager trying to provide outperformance or alpha into a beta manager. And a beta manager is more focused on risk and the market's performance. And it's not only the S&P 500, but you're uh, diversifying by asset class and country class as well, right? Ab absolutely. When you really embrace diversification, you really start to think globally because diversification as a rule minimizes risk or reduces risk. But you can't stop at the borders of Illinois, which is where I live. You can't stop at the borders of the U.S., which is where most of us live. You have to really think globally if you want to maximize the impact of diversification. So you have to be a global investor. You have to be a multi-asset class investor. I mean, this is kind of classic investment theory, though, right? Modern portfolio theory talks about diversification being the one free lunch available, basically. So isn't it the same as classic uh, investment uh, theory? That's exactly right, Jordan. I did not make this up. I stole this from Nobel <laughs> Prize winners. Uh, chief among them is Harry Markowitz with uh, Modern Portfolio Theory. It's that maximization of diversification where you can get that tangency portfolio, that optimal portfolio he talks about, which has the optimal risk and return yes. ratio. Okay. So, you, so you're going back to a classical, as you say, you stole it, but you, you added a new twist onto it by 
more wide diversification than most people have? Is that the added value there? Right. What's interesting is that you learn about these things like modern portfolio theory in school. So I learned about it once in undergrad and once in graduate school, and then I get out into the real world, and I don't hear a single person talk about it. <laughs> it's really interesting. It seems like they just kind of forget about it. And now uh, when I'm looking at other advisors and looking at their portfolios, some people mention modern portfolio theory, but I don't actually see it in practice. Uh, what I say to people is, I already know what's in your portfolio, and I've never even seen it. You've never told me anything about it. It's because everyone has the same portfolio. That portfolio is about 85% in U.S. assets. When you look at that 85% piece, it's usually some 70-30 split stocks, bonds. you got to give me some leeway on that ratio. Yeah. Uh, but the 85% is pretty steady. And then you have 15% in other things, uh, but that's usually international stocks. I would argue that you and everyone listening to this has zero international bonds, zero gold and commodities. It's interesting how much of the world's assets we actually don't think about. Now, when you accept, yeah, go ahead. We we do have to take a break, though. Uh, So we're going to come back uh, talking about diversification. Uh, My guest this hour is Randy Kurtz. He's the chief investment officer at BetaVisor LLC. Uh, Their website to find out more about them is betavisor.com, which is B-E-T-A-V-I-S-O-R, betavisor.com, based in Chicago. We'll be back after this. Always talking business. Talk to an expert. Call now, toll free, 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. Bob Pritchard has over 30 years of experience as a straight-talking business consultant and author working with some of the top Fortune 500 companies. Now he's come to the Voice America Business Channel to help you and your business. Tune in to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show for information about starting and successfully running a profitable business. From the movers and shakers to great marketing screw-ups, you can't afford to miss a single edition of the Bob Pritchard Radio Show, Tuesdays at 5 p.m. Pacific, 8 p.m. Eastern on Voice America Business. Leadership is a vital skill set in today's competitive global economy. Being a leader is not enough. To succeed, you must optimize your performance and know how to imbue others in your organization with leadership skills. Practical, actionable leadership insights are the focus of Leadership Development News, hosted each Monday at 9 a.m. Pacific, noon Eastern, by Kathy Greenberg and Relly Nadler on the Voice America Business Channel. Doctors Greenberg and Nadler, who coach global leaders on how to be most effective, will share their insights and contacts. The path to leadership excellence begins here. We're always talking business. Talk to an expert. Call now. Toll free. 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. You've been listening to The Money Answer Show with Jordan Goodman. If you have a question for Jordan or his guest, please call us now at 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Now back to Jordan. Welcome back to The Money Answer Show. This is Jordan Goodman, your host. My guest this hour is Randy Kurtz. He's the Chief Investment Officer at BetaVisor LLC. Uh, Their website is betavisor.com, based in Chicago. Welcome back to the show, Randy. Thanks so much. So we were talking about diversification. Basically, you were saying 
that uh, most people have too much U.S. stocks and not enough gold or global bonds and so on. Just briefly go through the, the asset classes uh, that people should have at different weights. But what are the asset classes they should have to have a correctly diversified global portfolio? Perfect. Well, the first thing I want to think about is just defining the different asset classes. And I define them like this. U.S. stocks, developed international stocks, and emerging market stocks. And then we go U.S. bonds, developed international bonds, and emerging market bonds. Then we go gold, commodities, and global real estate. I think you want something in all of those because at some level they all act differently. And you're saying the easiest way for most people to do that is to exchange traded funds, ETFs. Is that correct? Right. It would be uh, one very, very difficult to do that uh, in another manner, and two, it would be it would defeat the purpose because uh, if you're going to try to now buy individual stocks and bonds, you're not getting that full uh, benefit of diversification. What you really want to own is essentially the entire world, thousands and thousands of stocks and bonds. I mean, some would say. That that's you're you're destined for mediocrity. Then I mean, you you might not go down much, but you're you're never going to have a home run. You're never going to have a huge gain if you're that widely diversified. Right. It's so interesting. Uh, but people don't say that for the S and P 500. They say, oh, well, of course you'll get uh, solid returns from that. So uh, I spend a lot of time uh, researching historical data, and I'll give you some data that's uh, quite frankly startling. Uh, since 1970 is when I like to start. The S&P has averaged about 10% per year, and I think we've all heard numbers similar to that, uh, with a risk of about 17% or standard deviation. If you owned all those asset classes that I just told you about, and just equally, which I don't think you should, but that's what I would call dumb diversification, I'll just own everything equally, uh, you would have earned about 10% per year annually, but your risk would have been about 10 70 or uh, sorry, uh, 40% lower risk for the same returns. So it actually doesn't uh, get to mediocrity. It gets to an outstanding place, which is what John Bogle made a career out of in Vanguard. Now, people often emphasize return when they're getting into investments, but you think it's more important that they emphasize risk. Tell people the story of the quarter and the nickel and how they should figure that, work that into their assessment of risk. Absolutely. Uh, the first time I meet a prospective client, I ask them to think about all of their investable assets, their brokerage accounts, their IRAs, their 401ks. Take that whole sum of money and put it in cash on their desk. And now you're sitting there with a mountain of cash in front of you. And we're going to play a game that's going to determine what that cash does over the next 12 months. Now, here are the rules, Jordan. I'm going to put two coins on the table. One is a nickel and one is a quarter. And you get to choose which one to pick up. Now, if you choose to pick up the nickel, you're going to flip it. And if that nickel lands on heads, your mountain of cash will be up 5%. But if that nickel lands on tails, you'll be down 5%. Or, Jordan, you could choose to pick up the quarter. If you choose to pick up the quarter and flip it, if it lands on heads, you'll be up 25%. But if it lands on tails, you'll be down 25%. Now, which of the two coins would you like to pick up today? Well, I'll say the quarter because I'm willing to take more <laughs> risk. Right. So it's an interesting question to ask people. And what happens is the closer you are to retirement, the more likely you are to say, well, I'll pick up the nickel. Because they don't want to risk their capital. Right. They don't have time to risk it because they don't have time to make it up. 
Right. And when, when someone says to me, well, I'll pick up the nickel, I say, you're actually telling me that you care more about risk than return. And what's so interesting about it, once you realize you care more about risk and return, you start looking at the quarterly brokerage statements you get, and they all show you your return, but they never show you your risk. How could they do that? Even if they wanted to, how could they show your risk? Well, it's math. Uh, risk is typically uh, viewed as standard deviation. So it's the volatility of your money. And just as they have a computer program that generates what your mathematical return was historically, they can have that same computer program tell you what your standard deviation or risk was historically. I mean, psychologically, people don't mind risk when things are going up, and they mind it a lot when things are going down. I mean, the last nine years, we've had a big bull market. People love risk. In 2008, <laughs> they didn't love risk very much. So there's an emotional element of this as well. There is an emotional element as well. Uh, and obviously, if you're on the good side of risk, it changes your thoughts around it. But risk is really the range of outcomes that you expect. And do you expect that sort of nickelish range of outcomes? And the nickel is really not a fair example because I think it's really wider than that. Or do you expect larger range of outcomes? But what's interesting, once you start thinking about risk, you have a greater degree of control over risk than you do returns. For example, uh, I can't tell you what the S&P 500 is going to do over the next 12 months. But I can tell you what the volatility will be to a much greater level. For example, if you said, what's the S&P going to do? I'll say up 50% to down 50%. Just looking at history, I think that's the range of outcomes. The volatility, <laughs> it's yes. a huge range. I have no idea what it's going to be. The volatility will be really close to 17%, plus or minus 1% or 2%. Its volatility is really almost a definite. And you really get to pick it as you're creating a portfolio. And that implies that you could really pick your range of outcomes. I mean, lately, people think of volatility as like the VIX index. Mm -hmm. And that's been really quite low for quite a while. So is, mm -hmm. is, that, is it possible that that volatility can go down as a, a long-term bull market and people are confident and they put their money in and so volatility goes down? Is that a possibility? It absolutely is a fact that volatility has gone down, not just for stocks, but also for a lot of bonds. Uh, getting to exactly why that's happened, I think, is probably a larger discussion uh, that's a lot more uh, uncertain. But certainly volatility has calmed down. So maybe that 17% annual number for the S&P 500 over the long term is probably more a 14 or 15 these days. But it still implies a pretty large range of outcomes going forward. So when you add the diversification that you talked about, the international stocks, the bonds, the gold, the commodities, how does that affect your risk and your return profile? It decreases the risk. So all diversification does uh, as a principle, is decrease risk without actually impacting expected return. So it goes back to your question of, well, it seems like you're shooting for mediocrity when that's not what it does. It's easier for most people to think about the S&P 500. Is that higher risk or lower risk than picking one random company? So you have these elements, all these elements we just talked about. So what do you do to figure out how much to put in each, how you allocate amongst those different assets. That's where your uh, statistics and math uh, algorithms come in. H how do you do that? Right. That's probably what me, differentiates me the most from other people. Uh, I refuse to engage in guessing. 
guessing is, well, I think Apple will do this, or guessing is, I think the U.S. economy or stock market will do this. I prefer to have a process, and process based on math. Uh, so I'll give you a little bit of information around the process. For example, when we're thinking about how much should I have in U.S. stocks? How much should I have in Japanese stocks? Most people are just guessing about these things. So when we're thinking about it, I look at size first and foremost. So the two size factors I look at is, number one, how large is it in terms of global GDP? So the U.S. is about 24% of the world's GDP. The second thing I look at for size is the size of the world's stock markets. So the U.S. stock market is about 40% of the world's stock market. Just the market capitalization of all stocks, basically. That's absolutely correct. Okay. Uh -huh. So whether, whether we're looking at GDP or the size of the stock markets, both those numbers imply that the U.S. should be a minority of your holdings and the rest of the world is actually much bigger. Then, okay. once I have size, now I want to buy things that are cheaper rather than more expensive. And I think most investors want to buy cheaper investments rather than overpriced investments. Well, they the might say that in theory, although the, <laughs> their actual performance is usually to buy things that are already moving up. Or that's up. A absolutely right. And I find that's because they don't actually have a process. How do you define cheap or expensive is really the question. And however you want to define it, once it's defined, you could put math around it and then by the math, you can follow that process. So you do it on a price-earnings ratio of a market, or what, what value so, orientation do you use? Perfect. I like something uh, that has some sort of historical value. So if you're looking at the common PE, that actually has no predictive value. Uh, a guy by the name of Robert Schiller actually won a Nobel Prize a few years ago for what's called now the Schiller PE. And this is a cyclically adjusted 10-year PE takes 10 years of data to come up with the PE number. The uh, CAPE, they call it, right? The CAPE. That's absolutely correct. Cyclically right. adjusted PE. Uh, so I actually run this for the top 15 or so countries in the world. And historically, this data, now it depends on what country you're talking about, but for the U.S., exam for example, this data has over 90% correlation with the future returns of the stock market. And in general, like the higher the, the CAPE ratio the lower the returns in the future because you're buying it already high. There's not as much room for it to go up. Is that what you're That's saying? That's absolutely right. When, when the valuation is high, you tend to do pretty poorly. And when the valuation is low, you tend to do pretty well. So, for example, today, what's implied by the CAPE today for the U.S. stock market is you're going to get around 0% annually over the next seven years. Because it's, the market has moved up so much. Because it's so expensive. That's correct. And what now is that, cheap today? Uh, cheap is a lot of emerging market countries are very, very cheap. Mm -hmm. okay. So what's interesting is when you have a process like that based on math, now I can go in and say when the CAPE is high, implying low returns, I can underweight that. And when the CAPE is low, implying high returns, I can overweight that, just putting math around it. So now I'm never guessing. I'm just saying when things are statistically expensive, I'll underweight them. And when things are statistically cheap, I'll overweight them. So there's a certain contrarian part of this whole strategy is buying when things are out of favor to some extent. 
Is that right? That's ab- absolutely right. It goes back actually to Warren Buffett. When you you want to buy things that are cheap, you want to be greedy when others are fearful and fearful when others are greedy. Very good. We're going to take another break. This is Jordan Goodman of The Money Answer Show. My guest this hour is Randy Kurtz. He's the Chief Investment Officer at BetaVisor LLC. Uh, you can find out more about his firm and him at BetaVisor.com. He's based in Chicago. We'll be back after this. Stocks, bonds, investment opportunities, financial news, and talk. We can help. Call us now toll-free, 866-472-5790. 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. Have you had a chance to check out Voice America's online magazine and blog, Press Pass? If you love our hosts and shows, check out articles that give an even deeper perspective. Plus topics about health and fitness, movie reviews, philosophy, business tips and tactics, spirituality, positive thought, current events, and even more about your favorite host. It's just a click away at VAPressPass.com. That's VAPressPass.com. VA Press Pass by Voice America. All access, all the time. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. You've been listening to The Money Answer Show with Jordan Goodman. If you have a question for Jordan or his guest, please call us now at 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Now back to Jordan. Welcome back to The Money Answer Show. This is Jordan Goodman, your host. My guest this hour is Randy Kurtz. He's the Chief Investment Officer at BetaVisor LLC. Uh, their website, betavisor.com. Uh, he's based in Chicago. Welcome back to the show, Randy. Thanks so much. So we were talking about the kind of contrarian nature of what you're talking about, uh, buying things. So how do you know how long to hold them? What, what kind of rebalancing are you doing uh, when you're buying things that are low and selling things or buying less when they're high? Perfect question. Uh, you can't actually forecast that going forward. If something's cheap, then I want to own it until it's not cheap. Uh, But what happens is when you make a process around this, uh, for example, once you take into account size factors and then you take into account valuation factors, you could say, well, okay, I want 15% of my money in the S&P 500. And then what you could do is you could create a process for just buying low and selling high around that. If you don't want to do any of the other work after that, all you have to do is say, well, if I wanted 15% of my money in this asset, the S&P 500, if it gets down to 12%, I'm just going to buy it back to 15, buying low. If it gets up to 18%, I can now sell that, selling high. A process around buying and selling can actually remove one of the greatest pitfalls in investing history. Most people buy high and sell low because they're doing things randomly. They're doing things emotionally without a process around that. Emotionally, it's harder to do what you're talking about, buying more things that have not done well recently and are going down possibly, and selling things or buying less of what's been working for the last year or so. I mean, there's an emotional element that's difficult to do there. Right. Emotionally, uh, Jordan, I can't even do it. That's why I have a program help me do it. I tell the program, here's 
what my model portfolio should look like, 15% in this asset, et cetera. And here's how big or small that can get 18% to 12%. And if that asset gets down to 12, the computer says, hey, Randy, you said you wanted to buy it back to 15, so here's what you should do to buy it to 15. I need, as a professional, that computer to help me do it, me putting in the inputs and it telling me when to do it. It's just hard to do it uh, if you're just watching the news and thinking about things because when things go down, there's usually bad news, and it's hard to buy them in that case. So during a year, what kind of rebalancing is there typically going on? Are you rebalancing every month or once a year? How often are there changes up and down in the portfolio? Perfect. It actually doesn't make sense for me to do it uh, on a calendar basis, whether it's monthly, quarterly, annually, etc. I do it position by position when those accounts are out of balance. So my model portfolio has about 20 different positions in it. So on average, positions are about 5%. And every day when I load my software, it'll say, hey, for Jordan specifically, commodities are now down at 3.5%. For him, you have to buy it back to 5 And I might just make a, one trade for you that day. So it depends on how volatile the markets are. If they're moving around a lot, there'll be more trading. And it also depends on what's happening globally. Is any stock market becoming more expensive? Thus, I'm going to change the weighting globally for my clients, or et cetera, et cetera. So it's uh, hard to tell, but in general, it's on the lower trading side of the spectrum. Is some of this based on news? Say there's a news event that affects things positively or negatively. Brexit happens and the British stock market plummets. Or I mean, there's, you know, some dr- dramatic thing happens that affects valuations. Do you ever react to that? Say, oh, I, you know, it's gone down. Now I have to buy into Britain because it's plunged. Do you react to news events like that? Right. I don't react to the news at all. Everything I do is based on factual numbers, and those numbers get updated monthly. So, for example, when Brexit happens, uh, what happened to the historical GDP of uh, England? Nothing. So that actually stays the same. But what did happen is those stocks got cheaper. So if anything were to happen, we would have actually been buying that. So there's no, there's never a, well, I think, therefore, for I will do. It's always based on the numbers. Here's what we're going to do. So talk a little bit about how you work with clients, what kind of portfolios you deal with, and is it completely a discretionary account? Are you telling them what to do, and, and what kind of fees do you charge? Perfect. Uh, so my minimum account is $500,000. Uh, I charge fees on a sliding scale, uh, and the scale goes like this. On the first half million, I charge 0.95%, so just under 1%. On assets from 500000 to a million, I charge 0.75. On assets from 1 million to 5 million, I charge half a percent. And everything over a million, I charge 0.4%. Uh, and I only manage three portfolios. I think in general, people are doing too many things with their money. My three portfolios are what I call the three buckets of money in their life. For example, most people have some money where their thought is, for this money, I just want to keep it safe. Safety money. So that's bucket number one, what I call my conservative portfolio. How do you keep money safe? And in general, I would argue instead of putting that money essentially in U.S. cash, global cash is actually steadier. The U.S. dollar has actually lost about 5% of its purchasing power so far this year. Doesn't look like it at your bank account, but that's actually what's happened. 
the second bucket is what I call tangency. And that's where some people, most people have most of their money where their thought is, I want my money working for me over time. I want it prudently invested to earn a fair return. That's my second bucket. And then some people have some money where they say, I want to be aggressive with this money. And that's my third portfolio. But I only manage three portfolios. So whatever I'm doing for you, for your middle bucket is exactly what I'm doing for me and my family for my middle bucket to keep some of your money safe. I only know one best way to do that. So I can only have one portfolio to do that. Uh, that means that I'm taking full discretion and I'm managing everybody's money when it's with me in the same exact manner. So for somebody who doesn't have 500000 to start with, how can they use the techniques uh, you're talking about here without having all the fancy algorithms and all that to help improve their own portfolios? It gets a little bit tougher, but not totally impossible to make a reasonable effort. Uh, I direct most people who can't come with me to Vanguard. And I do it for two reasons. Number one, they're super cheap and they have a lot of great ETF offerings. Uh, and typically, uh, what you would want to do is do some sort of retirement-based fund with about half of your money. Uh, so if you're going to retire in 10 years, that could be the Vanguard Retirement Date 2027 fund. That's going to have a collection of U.S. stocks and bonds and international stocks and bonds. From my perspective, it's still overweight U.S. That's why I want another half of your money, where then you're going to have to buy individual ETFs. And they'll likely be from Vanguard, an emerging market stock ETF, an emerging market bond ETF, international stocks, international bonds, global real estate, gold commodities. If you take all those asset classes, the nine that I mentioned, you can do a reasonable job of creating a decent portfolio. And then you set these uh, benchmarks like 15% of the portfolio for each. And if they go up a lot, you, you cut it back to 15. And if they go under, you add more. That's kind of abs approximating what you're doing, right? A absolutely. If you're going to do it on your own, I would set, uh, here's my model portfolio, what you said, 15%, 11%, whatever it is. Uh, and then on some sort of quarterly or semi-annual basis, go in and check. And anything that's down, don't worry about the news buy it back up to that 11 or 15%, everything that's too high, be happy to take those gains and sell them back to the initial position. Now, since you have so much overseas, uh, currencies do make a difference. As you said, the dollar's been down a bit this year. Uh, how should that play into your allocation with emerging markets where currencies can be extremely volatile and the US dollar versus euro? How does that impact uh, how you should allocate things? It impacts it a lot, but it's impossible for any of us to guess what a currency is going to do. <clears throat> excuse me, to do going forward. But what we do know about the the principles of diversification is mathematically, all the world's currencies bundled up is going to be less volatile than almost any single currency. Uh, so it does matter, and you really want to do that, uh, bundling them all up. But don't be guessing about, well, I think the U.S. dollar is going to be strong or weak. Uh, it's just too hard to play that game. By diversifying, you're saying in a certain way you're canceling out, you have gains in one currency canceling out losses in another. Is that basically what you're saying? That's 100% correct. Yes, okay. And then the same thing with bonds versus stocks. I mean, stocks have done an awful lot better than bonds for quite a while here. So I guess your argument would be get out of a lot of stocks and go into bonds. But wh why would that be a good idea right now when the stock market seems to be roaring and bonds have very low yields and 
if anything, interest rates would go up, which would hurt bonds. Well, I do want to separate those two. I want to look at just the stocks in a, in a, their own right, and then look at just bonds, because bonds are actually very, very expensive as well. When yields get low, that means the bonds are more expensive. Uh, so I would say that in the developed world, U.S. and developed Europe and Japan, stocks are generally expensive, as are bonds. Uh, but the emerging markets are different. So it's really thinking about stocks. How do we allocate away from what's done really well toward things, towards things that have done less well? And it's what you want to do. You want to be selling high and buying low. Uh, my guest this hour is Randy Kurtz. He's the Chief Investment Officer at BetaVisor LLC. Uh, their website to find out more about them is BetaVisor.com, which is B-E-T-A. V-I-S-O-R, BetaVisor.com, based in Chicago. We'll be back after this. From the boardroom to you. Voice America Business Network. We hear it and read about it every day in the news. America is heading over a fiscal cliff. Home prices are still receding and unemployment growing. How can you preserve and increase your wealth in this kind of economy? Tune in to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with host Jay Taylor. Jay will explain the decline of our monetary system and the economy and will give you winning investment ideas and the tools to protect and increase your wealth. Turning Hard Times into Good Times with Jay Taylor can be heard Tuesdays at 3 p.m. Eastern Time, 12 noon Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Get the news on our shows and other happenings by following us on Twitter. Find us at VoiceAmericaTRN or Twitter.com forward slash VoiceAmericaTRN. You've been listening to The Money Answer Show with Jordan Goodman. If you have a question for Jordan or his guest, please call us now at 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Now back to Jordan. Welcome back to The Money Answer Show. This is Jordan Goodman, your host. My guest this hour is Randy Kurtz, Chief Investment Officer at BetaVisor LLC. His website is BetaVisor.com. Welcome back to the show, Randy. Thanks so much, Jordan. So we were talking a little bit about overvaluing certainty and undervaluing uncertainty. What do you mean by that? So an example would be when thinking about a seven-year interest-only loan, which is not a conventional loan. Now, if you think about that, a seven-year interest only means you're only paying interest. You're not paying principal. Thus, your monthly payments are cut roughly in half. And you do that for seven years. So for those first seven years, that's a pretty big win in your life. Your monthly mortgage payments getting cut in half, fantastic. That's the certainty that for the next seven years, you're going to win. What's uncertain is what happens in the seven years after that, when you have to do a new mortgage and people get worried. Well, in seven years, what are rates going to be and what's going to happen? And that uncertainty in the future leads them not to take that deal. I think most times we should think about what is certain about this and not worry about what's uncertain because it's uncertain. We don't know. Maybe it'll be good. Maybe it'll be bad. But we want to maximize certain things as many times as we can in life. Another of your truisms is the higher the risk of your investment philosophy the lower the odds of you realizing the long-term returns of that strategy. And that's because people are buying high 
and it makes it they, they get lower returns. Is that the idea? Yeah, that's one of my favorite ones. And you hit it on the head. If you take a really high risk philosophy, what that's implying, risk is a range of outcomes. You can have some really, really great years, but you also will, as a fact, have some really, really bad years. That's what high risk means. And thus, if you take that high risk strategy, when it goes bad, you are so much more likely to jump out of it when it's low that you're not going to get that rebound. And mathematically, I see this all the time. People who take high-risk strategies fail to realize the long-term returns because that downturn usually gets them to sell low. Are there ways around that? For example, people put in stop-loss orders uh, 20% below their current price to prevent you know, a waterfall decline of some kind. Uh, you can prevent the huge downturn by doing a stop-loss order. Uh, but it's really, really difficult to actually make money with that over time because then when are you going to jump back in? Because the whole point of investing is the more you can buy low and get that really great run-up, the better you're going to do. And if you're taking that off the table by jumping out at certain periods, nobody knows when to jump back in. Yeah. Uh, you also have said uh, you've heard about past performance not being indicative of future performance. People say that all the time. But emphasizing risk more, past risk is indicative of future risk. Uh, so is that correct? In other words, you, you can predict risk just as well as you can predict return? Well, no. I'm saying you can actually predict risk much better than return. Yes. Uh, risk is much more certain, just as in that S&P 500 example. What will the S&P do over the next 12 months? I don't know. Up 50 to down 50 is sort of the range. But the risk is going to be pretty close to 16 or 17 percent. And that really dictates the range of outcomes. So we should be thinking, what was the past volatility of this investment? That really will tell us a lot about what the future volatility will be. You also say that people think of certain facts as big lies. And one of them is that homeownership makes you money. Why is that a lie? Oh, it's uh, one of the most mis misconstrued ideas. So let's say you're looking at buying a half million dollar home and you say, well, it's in a great place. It's going to go up a lot and I don't want to have debt. So I'll pay cash half a million dollars for that home. Now you own it outright. The next week you have a home uh, welcoming party and your best friend Bill Gates shows up, of course. And Bill says, hey, Jordan, great house. I love it. I'll give you a million dollars for it. So you take his million bucks and your profit was half a million dollars. Here's an alternate scenario. You have that same half million dollar home, but you don't put any money into it. You borrow $500,000. You throw your housewarming party. Bill Gates comes over. He gives you a million dollars for it. You pay off your half million dollar loan and your profit was still a half million dollars. Your appreciation of the home is always yours. And in these two scenarios, the appreciation was five was five hundred thousand, but you think about it. In that first scenario, you put five hundred thousand dollars of cash into the investment, and whenever you sold it, that five hundred thousand dollars came right back out to you. You didn't earn a single penny on that. The appreciation was yours either way. Five hundred thousand earning not a single penny is a very very unusual investment to make. So how should people approach home ownership? Because people think of it as one of their major ways to, to build assets over time. Right. It's one of the best ways to save assets for a lot of people. People end up with these 30-year mortgages putting money in every month, almost like a 401k for 30 years, putting money into your 401k. 
But when you retire, you have this 401k and you're like, that's what's going to fund my life. Oftentimes you have a half million dollar home that's fully paid for, but you're not thinking about that half million dollars. A lot of people actually need that half million dollars out of their home to fund their life. And it's another example of we shouldn't be guessing with how much equity we should have in our home. This should be based on math. What's the best equity that I should have in my home to maximize my odds of survival? Should I own more of my home or is it better for me to take equity out? How am I maximizing my odds of survival? doesn't matter how you invest, say you take equity out. If you invest it at a higher rate than you're paying on the mortgage, then it would make sense. If you're earning a lower rate, then it might not make sense. That's uh, 90% of the way there. I would argue with you, though. Uh, I'm not sure I actually have to invest it at a higher rate than my cost of debt because what's, there's another value, and that value is liquidity. How much is it worth to you to have access to that money when you need it? Really, really valuable. And it's a hard to put a number on that. But we see companies do this all the time. Apple owes billions of dollars in debt, and they have billions of dollars just in cash at the bank. That cash is underperforming their cost of debt. And they're doing that on purpose because they want the liquidity for when they need it. Oh, So on an individual basis, so say you have somebody getting to retirement, They've got a million dollars in assets, but they've got a home uh, that's got a you know good-sized mortgage on it, say a $400,000 mortgage, something like that. How can they just decide how much of the cash to use to pay off their mortgage so they don't have a mortgage payment anymore since they don't have their salary in retirement? Well, the first thing they want to think about is how much money do they need to run the rest of their life? So they probably have social security that's going to come in at some point, but they need more than that on an annual basis. So they're taking money out of their portfolio projected going forward. What if they then decide, well, I have a half million or a million dollar portfolio. Day one, I'm going to take 400000 and pay off my mortgage. Now I'll be debt free. Well, I think this is probably a bad move because now you only have $600,000 to live off of the rest of your life and 600,000 doesn't last as long as a million does. So pay rushing in to pay off debt just because it's debt and we think that's a four letter word is often not the best approach. I say people can be house rich and cash poor and you might feel good but you need to have the money to buy the groceries and things as well. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely right. People usually don't think about their house as an investment that they've saved into that they can now use to fund the rest of their retirement. Yeah. Now, also, you, you say people often question, should they hold or buy or sell an individual stock? How, how should they answer that question? I know you like ETFs, but if they want to do some individual stocks, how should I answer that question? Should I buy the stock? Should I sell the stock? Well, anytime someone says to me, hey, Randy, I'm, uh, I own this stock, it's you know Microsoft, and I don't know, I'm thinking maybe I should sell it. Do you think I should sell it? I always say, immediately sell it. Now, a lot of times this is a mental exercise because there are taxes, but I said, sell it in your mind today. Wake up tomorrow with that cash sitting in your brokerage account, and now tell me what you're going to buy tomorrow. Because there's about 20,000 diff 20, different things you could buy tomorrow. The odds of you waking up tomorrow and saying, well... I have cash. I want to rebuy what I just sold. The odds of that are so low, and it always implies you want to sell it and move on to something else. But before you actually sell something, you should know what you're going to do with the money, where you're going to reinvest it? Uh, well, I would say the first thing you want to do is know what the tax implications are. 
and I think you usually want to bear those anyway because the benefits of diversification are great. But I don't think you have to know what you're going to buy next because owning an individual stock is inherently and mathematically risky. And if you don't think you want to own it anymore, I think you should get into cash. Okay. So let's kind of sum all this up. We've got a short time to go here. What is What difference is it going to make in people's returns and risk if they use your strategy of having this diversified global portfolio and ETFs as opposed to the way most people come to you with kind of mostly U.S. stocks and not well diversified? The chief thing it's going to do is mathematically reduce their risk, right? We can't guarantee returns. We don't really know what returns are going to be. But mathematically, the moment you embrace a strategy like this, like this, you have reduced risk. And you likely haven't impacted your expected returns. It's a deal that most people want to take all day if they know how to do it. And do institutions do the same thing? I mean, this works for individuals. This is what individual institutions should be doing. Right. It's funny. Institutions should be doing it. And their portfolio more often looks like yours than it does modern portfolio theory. They're falling for the same uh, mental breakdowns that individuals do. It's this home bias, wanting to put most of your money in U.S. stocks and bonds. But in Japan, they have most of their money in Japanese stocks and bonds. And you would never accept that for your portfolio. I mean, they're under a certain pressure, like it's a pension fund, to meet payments. They've got a, a certain liability they've got to match. Whereas an individual, if he doesn't make it, you know, they have a rough time. But they're not having millions of people depending on their returns. So that puts more pressure on them to amp up their returns. Uh, it does. But I would also argue that uh, the head of household of a family of four who wants to retire has a lot of pressure on him and his own assets or her and her own assets because they only get one shot to make their retirement successful. Tell us a little bit about what people can find at betavisor.com. Perfect. It talks about our offerings. Uh, we basically offer three things. One is portfolio management but that we talked about. Uh, number two is planning. Planning is crucial. Are you on pace for what you want and how can we maximize the odds? Uh, and number three is being your personal CFO, advice. Advice is really crucial. Should you own more of your house or less? How should you finance your next car? Should you be pulling money from your IRA or your after-tax portfolio? All of these questions are very important. Terrific. Well, thanks so much. My guest this hour has been Randy Kurtz. He's the Chief Investment Officer at BetaVisor LLC. Uh, you can find out more, as we just discussed, at his website, which is BetaVisor.com. He's based in Chicago, and I think he's given us a lot of interesting advice on how to allocate your portfolio, diversify to get, in effect, higher returns in the long run with much, much lower risk. So thanks so much for being a guest on The Money Answer Show, Randy. My pleasure, Jordan. Thank you so much for the time. Thanks again. We'll be back next week with another edition of The Money Answer Show. Goodbye for now. Thank you for joining Jordan Goodman and The Money Answer Show. If you have a question for Jordan, please visit his website at www.moneyanswers.com. And be sure to tune in every Monday at 12 p.m. Pacific Standard Time right here on Voice America Business. See you next week.